Turn to Romans 1. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just going to recycle through Romans again. Well, we're going to start a new, uh, new study here, systematic theology. Now, this, of course, is an all-encompassing term that you could go about a million different ways with, but um, my uncle and I are using a book just kind of as a rough template, and uh, we'll be going through that book, really have no time frame, so maybe over the next year, maybe, maybe shorter, maybe longer, really only the Lord knows. So Lord willing, we'll be looking at uh, systematic theology theology. Is that a proper spelling? Oh, I always get nervous when I'm up here. Systematic theology. So, uh, just a quick Google of systematic theology. Got an answer from gotanswers.com, and it's a Christian website. And they say this of systematic theology. It is therefore the division of theology into systems that explain its various areas. For example, many books of the Bible give information about angels. No one book gives all the information about angels. Systematic theology takes all the information about angels from all the books of the whole Bible and organizes it into a system called angelology. That is what systematic theology is all about, organizing the teachings of the Bible into categorical systems. So as I said, Lord willing, through these weeks and months, we'll be looking at a host of topics, including angels, the study of mankind, eschatology, ecclesiology, and other areas. Some of the areas will, probably most of the areas will be reviewed from any of us that we've just previously covered in Romans, um, including soteriology. But again, the, the life of the believer really is review. We're perpetually to renew our minds and go back into God's Word and see what it says. And uh, if there's any specific points, I'll throw this out there that, you know, you would like to see covered or um, specific topic, then certainly let us know and we'll consider it. So before we continue, um, let us define what, what is theology. And that's not a rhetorical question. Does anyone have just a brief definition of what theology is? Just break down the word. Study of God, excellent. So theo, of course, in, in uh, Greek is, is the word God. And then logi or logo is word. So it's the study really of God in a word. Definition here is theology is the study of the nature of God and religious belief. So you have theo and then you have ology, the study of God, or the, the reasons for God. Now, in the Middle Ages, this is just an interesting fact, theology really was called the queen of the sciences. Um, many people in the church, especially in that time period, considered theology a proper science. Now, of course, in today's secular society and the secular universities, many people would not consider theology a proper scientific study. A lot of times you see it like the department of religion or the department of religions. But when the Catholic Church or when the church had such a iron grip on society, theology was considered a proper science. So, why is it important to study theology? 
Or why is it important even to study systematic theology? A couple reasons. Um, the first is, to the world, theology is nonsensical. So from our standpoint here, studying theology, studying the things of God, words about God, reasons for God, make perfect sense. But from a negative standpoint, the world views what we're doing here as completely useless. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3.18. He says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The average person that is in the world thinks that what we're doing here, delving into the things of God, learning about God and theology, are utterly fruitless. They may think that they're Christians or they may say that they believe in God, but us gathering here today is a frivolous waste of time. Not only is it a waste of time, but it's also a waste of resources. Just think here for a second, to the world standards, perhaps this building could be used for something better. Perhaps the resources and utilities in this building could be used for something better other than us gathering here today, learning about the things of God. Taking it a step further, speaking on an archaic book like the Bible. In the eyes of the world, that's completely useless. I would be better off spending my time perhaps talking about finances or economics or something else that could have some productive value for the world. Also think of paying a pastor. To the world, to the unbeliever, that's completely foolishness. That money spent paying a pastor to teach upon the things of theology, upon God's word, would be better used somewhere else. Maybe helping the homeless, or maybe used in innovation, or some scientific experiment. But we know for us that this theology is for personal growth, it's for our edification, and ultimately for the glorification of God. And I think that's the most important thing for us to remember. The Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So first and foremost, let us keep that in our mind as we look through this study. And again, today's just kind of going to be a, a brief overview of theology and how, as we go through this study, how we can edify ourselves and grow in the knowledge of Christ. Now for us, why is theology, looking at it in a systematic manner, why is it important for us? Well, I think first and foremost, it's for personal growth. So as we read through all of these different topics and subdivisions of the Bible, it's important for us to be able to grow in the grace of God. Peter says this to his audience in 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Through prayer, through meditation, but also studying the Word of God. He says this in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So again, Peter, in a broad sense, pointing to the theological knowledge that he is wanting his readers to impart to themselves to grow as newborn babes grow as they go from milk to soft foods, to solid foods, so should we in our understanding and study of theology. 
this is just a question here. How can we progress in our sanctification if we have not even developed an understanding of the basic ideas of the faith, of the theological terms that we have come to know? Growth or our sanctification would be slow and diminutive. Looking here, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians, uh, we'll be looking at just a couple passages here real quick. I'm sure you guys are well familiar with the church at Corinth, having a host of issues that Paul had to address, kind of as the uh, church at Galatia had issues. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2. And we set it up here for context, Paul is currently reprimanding the Corinthian church for their lack of spiritual growth in doctrine. They were really still squabbling about the elementary things of the faith. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 3, and I, brethren, cannot speak to you as a spiritual people, but as carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it, and even now, you are still not able. For you are all still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and division among you, are you not carnal and behave like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, or another, I am of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Why did he reprimand them? Is it because what Paul was teaching was necessarily difficult? No. The reason is, is that the Corinthian church were still really arguing about the basic elements of their salvation. If you read back in chapter 1, Paul explains, he says this in verse 12, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided... Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And Paul is saying here in chapter 3 is that he was still feeding them with spiritual milk. As a baby is fed milk when they're a newborn, maybe up to even a couple years, so these Corinthians were still in the early stages of their faith, not because they were new believers, but because they refused to advance to the more practical and earnest things that they had to in their Christian faith, they were still arguing over basic things. Albert Barnes says this, As unto those recently born into his kingdom, and unable to understand the profounder doctrines of the Christian religion, it is a common figure to apply the term infants and children to those who are feeble in understanding or unable from any cause to comprehend the more profound instructions of science and religion. So let us encourage one another, I encourage you and also encourage myself as we're going through this study, let us not remain infants in our study of theology. As we're going through this systematic theology over the coming weeks and months, I encourage you to dig deep into the Word of God, to think deeply about these and not remain infants in the faith. Again, Paul states in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.26... He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many were mighty, not many noble are called. 
So again, our study of systematic theology is not just for the advanced Christian. It's not for the intelligent Christian. It's for every single person inside of here. Now, of course, every person really learns at a different level, as we'll see here in a couple minutes. Every person has a different understanding than other people. But we can all, in one way, shape, or form, learn and develop and enjoy the study of systematic theology. This word wise here, just quickly, um, in verse 26, it means to be skilled, expert, skilled in letters, cultivated, of the Greek philosophers or orders, or of Jewish theologians. So Paul, again, is saying here is that the Church of Corinth, and also for us here in the modern day America, at Bible Chapel of Delhi Hills, he's not saying that we're all wise, we're not all PhDs and scholars. But Paul is still telling the church at Corinth that they can advance and learn the things of Christ. So can we. As with the Corinthians, again, this is just um, to repeat, most of us here are simple in the intellectual field. Many of us have college degrees, many of us are business owners, or successfully worked in a field of study or vocation for decades. We, like the Corinthians... And also, as in Hebrews chapter 5, have little excuse for being ignorant of these elementary doctrines that we're going to go over the coming weeks and months. We can learn the things of Christ. And an example of that is the church at uh, Philippi. Paul was encouraged by the Philippians in their advanced learning of the scriptures. He says this, Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the Philippians, not only in Paul's presence, were they advancing in the doctrines of Christ, but when Paul left, they were still growing in the faith and knowledge of Christ. So that's point one. Why? It's for our personal growth. So again, I encourage you as we go through this, Think through these things to your capabilities. The next, for personal defense. Why are we supposed to go through the Bible systematically? For personal defense. We should be able to defend the gospel when asked for the reasons and the hope that lies within us. Again, Peter, he says this, "...but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts." Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So as you go through here, there will be some topics that perhaps some of us are not familiar with. But nonetheless, it should open our willingness and our minds to want to understand and learn the things of Christ, so that when a non-believer... Or someone else ask us for the reasons that we believe these things, we can at least give a basic definition and response as to why we have faith in Christ. Turn over, if you would, to Acts 17. This is a familiar passage to many of us in here. But this is Paul in the Mars Hill, or the, I can never say it properly, the Oropagus. So as he's standing on Mars Hill, he's surrounded by Greek philosophers. And what does he do? As he notices the inscription 
of one of the statues to the unknown God. So what does Paul do? Is Paul goes before these Greek philosophers and these educated Greeks and perhaps some other common Greeks there, and he makes a defense of the God of Israel or of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 27 here. He said, let me read with uh, verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwelling. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that he might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and have our being. Now, verse 27, Paul, interestingly enough, knew and was educated enough that he was able to take that quote in verse 26, 27, and 28 from one of the Greek poets. Paul was a learned individual. Again, he was, at the time he was about 21, he had about the equivalent of two PhDs. So he was brilliant. But Paul was just not educated in the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul was a well-rounded individual who also was educated in the Greek philosophers and the Greek way of thinking. So Paul, by having an understanding, was able to go apologetically to these Greeks, use their own poets and their own gods to defend the Christian faith. Charles Ellicott here, and this is where Paul quotes from this Greek philosopher. His name was Cleanthes, and what Paul quotes here was a hymn to Zeus. The fact of the quotation would at once quicken the attention of the hearers. That is Paul to the Greeks. They would feel that they had not to deal with an illiterate Jew, like the traitors or exorcists who were so common in Greek cities, but with a man of culture like their own acquainted with the thoughts of some, at least, of their great poets. And that was of Paul. Why was he able to defend the gospel of Christ? And why was he able to present the gospel to these pagan Greeks? It's because he was able, really, to empathize with them, to bring from their past some past poets in Greek theology and philosophy and present it to them in a manner where he was able to present Christ. Now, before I'm saying that we all have to have an understanding of the Apostle Paul, that's not what I'm saying. Hear me out here. In the ancient world, Paul had few equivalents intellectually. Again, as we see, he was brilliant. His capabilities in defending God were far superior to the vast majority of humanity and also to the vast majority of us. He could go toe-to-toe with the best and brightest of his... uh, Excuse me. He could go toe-to-toe with the best and brightest of his day attested to his repeated infiltration of the pagan and Jewish temples and debate with their respective scholars. So most of us are probably thinking now that we don't have that capacity of the Apostle Paul in matters pertaining to theology, orthodoxy, and apologetics. And I would wholeheartedly say that I would agree. Very few of us in here, in fact, probably every single one of us in here, don't have the capabilities of the Apostle Paul intellectually, even theologically, in his understanding. But nonetheless, each and every one of us in here still has the ability to understand these doctrines of Christ. Romans 12.3, as we went through, 
probably a couple months ago, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So each person's gifts are different, or excuse me, are differently allocated to God. So the Apostle Paul was far superior to the vast majority of mankind. St. Augustine, uh, Thomas Aquinas, Luther Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, they were few and far between in their time period and throughout human history. But nevertheless, the Bible makes it patently clear that each and every one of us, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, have been given specific measures of faith where we can understand these principles and doctrines of theology and then defend the faith for those who ask us for a reason. Matthew Pohl says, Faith here is put for the knowledge of God in Christ and all other spiritual gifts and graces bestowed upon the faithful. These are called faith because they are given with faith and exercised by faith. Of these, God deals to every man his measure or portion. Not all gifts to one, nor the same gift to everyone, in the same measure or proportion. So again, none of us in here have the capability of the Apostle Paul when it comes to theology and apologetics. But that does not mean that every single one of us in here does not have any capability to understand these theological terms or to give a defense when people ask us. Now, uh, let me go ahead and erase this real quick. At least the systematic part. And I'm hoping this term is at least helpful in uh, driving home the point that I'm trying to make here. So we'll still keep the term theology, but something I tried, I, I came up with this week as we go through here, peer theology. Now what is a peer? Is Usually the term peer is someone that's generally our equivalent. And that's the, cro- the proper spelling of peer, correct? I typed it in my in my uh, Word document, P-I-E-R, and then it came up with a little blue line that says, I think you mean the other peer. So blame it on, on Google Docs if that's the improper uh, spelling. But peer theology. So what I mean by peer is each and every one of us in here, again, has a basic understanding of theology. Peer theology is that we should be able to have a theological understanding of those who are similar to us. So for each person in here, we generally, on a daily basis, whether it be at our jobs, whether it be at school, whether it be at church, we generally interact with people who are like us intellectually, economically, and socially. Meaning most of our interactions are with people who are like us in these areas. Now, of course, that would differ. Sometimes we're involved with people who are far smarter than us. Sometimes we're involved with people who are less intelligent than us. But the point here is, is that I think, and I think biblically, you need to develop adequate theology and an, excuse me, and an understanding of theology to be able to converse with the people in your respective circles. If one of your friends asks you for the reason of the hope that is inside of you, you should be able to cogently, rationally give a defense that is adequate. And that's the term I call here peer theology. So as we go through here, as myself and as my uncle teach these different doctrines, you should be able to develop an understanding of these respective doctrines, not exhaustively, some more so than others, some less so than others, 
that is adequate that you can properly explain to those around you. Does that make sense? We don't have an excuse to say, oh, well, you know, my IQ is only 85. I can't learn anything. Or my IQ is 130. Therefore, I can know everything. We have no excuse for that. I think the Bible makes it clear that each and every person, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, is capable of at least learning elementary things about each theological and doctrinal thing that we are going to go over. Again, I don't think we're expected as Christians necessarily to be able to challenge people who are far superior to us intellectually in a debate. I mean, for an example, I struggle with, uh, with languages. So Hebrew and Greek were very difficult for me to even get a basic understanding, especially going through school in a couple classes that I took. So even though I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't think I would be able to go toe-to-toe with a Jewish rabbi based off the Hebrew in the Old Testament. I don't think necessarily that that's my expectation and that's my job. Perhaps God has given someone else who is far greater intellectually when it comes to the languages of Hebrew and Greek who can then defend the faith from that standpoint. I, I think of Christopher Jarrell, brilliant when it comes to Hebrew and Greek. Maybe that is his calling. He is then able to challenge that rabbi or that Hebrew scholar in the Old Testament scriptures. So you get the point here is that I can't tell you what you're good at for each and every person in here. You have to be able to understand and, under, uh, and realize what you're capable uh, of learning and then teaching to others around you. So I would encourage you, uh, as we go through this, to really challenge yourself. Again, there are going to be things that perhaps you don't understand, that you find difficult to understand, but it is our duty as Christians to be able to challenge ourselves um, in these matters of theology. And I've pontificated for a while. Does anyone have any comments or questions? Yes, Dad. Ramble on. <laughs> I've rambled on. Anything else? So again, I, I hope you keep that, keep that in your mind as we go through this. Where do you stand intellectually? And I think most people have a tendency probably to underestimate themselves from a lazy standpoint. Now, there are certainly people who ever overestimate themselves. Uh, but I think the tendency of the average person is to underestimate themselves what they're capable of doing. So again, my encouragement, I think my uncle would say the same as, as we go through these things, Challenge yourself, not only in Sunday school, but throughout the week. Go back and review these things and see if you can uh, learn more than you're capable of. And this is just an anecdotal I was reading this week about St. Augustine. Brilliant man. Uh, But he was a brilliant child. And this is kind of just going to the fact that each person's been given different gifts. Um, When St. Augustine was young, his parents saw 
he was promised intellectually. He had other brothers and sisters, but his parents really poured a lot of time, energy, and money into him because of his brilliance. Before he was a believer, he taught philosophy, uh, communication, as a pagan. It was not until he was saved that he started to defend the faith before the Donatists and the Pelagians. He was a believer, had the same faith as you and me, yet he had God-given intellectual abilities from when he was a child that far surpassed the vast majority of us, well, I would say all of us in here. And his Christian thinking and, and teaching has gone throughout the centuries. So again, each and every person has a different level of understanding, but I encourage you to challenge yourselves as we go through here. And then just a couple closing thoughts. Get done a couple minutes early here. The reality is, is that even for a church like Bible Chapel, really we're non-denominational, we're not Presbyterian, Baptist, we'd be Baptistic, but as we go through here, we'll probably have disagreements in uh, certain aspects of theology. Um, So I encourage you, especially when it comes to eschatology, which I don't know how far we'll get into that, but we'll have disagreements with one another. So I encourage you to uh, keep an open mind, challenge yourself, maybe the things that you believed for a while, maybe as you go through there, possibly they're not exactly what you had thought that they are. So I'd encourage you to challenge yourself there intellectually of what have I been taught, what have I learned, and is it scripturally based? And again, uh, this probably is more outside of our church, but there are different theological viewpoints. Um, You have really what R.C. Sproul would call like the Reformed theology. That's kind of just like a, I would say like a broad school of thought. You have Arminian theology, um, and sometimes they'll crisscross with one another. Sometimes I or other people in here would disagree with Reformed theology, different aspects of it. Um, So we won't agree on everything, but we will agree on the basics of the Trinity, the virgin birth. If you don't agree with those, then, you know, the back door, just just walk out the back door. So uh, got done a couple minutes early here. Does anyone have any comments or questions? So, uh, Very good point. Uh, next week, perhaps, I know Kevin, uh, on a Sunday night series, he's been going through the attributes of God, but in systematic theology, it really would only be logical um, to start with the doctrine of God. Although, strikingly enough, uh, on the Ligonier app, John Gerstner has a handout theology, 100 lectures on systematic theology, and he actually did not start with God. He started with mind, of the person. So I, I, he had a reason for doing that, but I think next week we'll, uh, we'll start with the doctrine of God, and then there's no set pace, no set time, and we'll go from there. So I appreciate your attention today, and I uh, encourage you to really feast upon the, the doctrines of God. Thank you.